Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for tonight's program. Every one of those strangers who bore the Christian name had therein a claim to hospitality. So it was expected that if a Christian traveller turned up in a town, he could find the local household church and he could rightly expect he'd be looked after or she'd be Over the past two weeks, Dr Corbett has been looking at the language and culture of the Greco-Roman household as described in the New Testament of the Bible. Rather than just being a history lesson, we're discovering that the household of God has some pretty special implications for us today. Let's join Dr Corbett for the third In the Household of God series. Tonight, a closer look at the importance of hospitality. Let's pray. Father, unless we hear your voice, we haven't really heard much worth hearing. So I pray, Father, that as I share your word, your written word would come alive in our hearts, that the voice of your spirit would be heard, that, Father, we would also have your word confirmed with signs and wonders as it's preached. May people experience the hidden secrets of their hearts being clearly exposed to your gaze. And, Father, may they find that gaze a gaze of incredible love, incredible acceptance, and incredible, almost unbelievable forgiveness. So I pray, Father, have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the household of God, and we've seen that the Bible in the New Testament uses the term household in a way that may sound like the Australian Bureau of Statistics uses that word, as if it's just a family gathering under the one roof and hopefully I've shown you by now that a household was a particular thing. It was comprised of a householder, usually almost by default had to be someone of means and wealth because he was supporting a family, his family, not just his children but oftentimes his unmarried sister-in-laws his grandparents, his wife's grandparents, quite possibly, possibly his own brothers and sisters. And then he would have had staff referred to in Scripture as servants and sometimes I feel maybe mistranslated in the New Testament as slaves. And so there could have been some 40-plus people involved in a household. The householder was often called upon by people in the community. Oftentimes the civic leaders would call on a householder because he was a person of wealth. And they would call on the householder to donate or bequest or give a certain amount of money often to maybe a public works. In which case, if he did, he was referred to as a patron. And that's where we today get the word patron from. When a householder and another householder formed an alliance, as I alluded to earlier, there was a title that they exchanged with each other. And that title was friend. We use that word friend today in a pretty flippant way, especially if you're on Facebook. Of the three friends that I have on Facebook, two of them I've never met. So it's hardly friends, is it? If... An individual went to a householder, not a part of his household, and presented him with a need that he felt the householder would have an interest in helping. And what would that interest be? That interest would be 
that if he did help that person, this person would brag about it to others. This person would tell others what this patron, this householder, had done. The person, the individual who came to a householder and presented him with a need which the householder could offer to meet that need and if he did, it was called a charis. The English word for charis, see it's ch in Greek, there's no ch, it's k sound, charis. The English word for charis is grace. So when the New Testament uses the word grace, it's using it with that in mind, with that backdrop, that this is what someone of incredible wealth or sufficient wealth would do without the need, didn't have to, but would do it freely. But the person who received that grace was referred to as a client. And the client, this is how the game was played, the client knew what they then had to do for the patron. What they then had to do was show, here's another word in the New Testament, they had to show gratitude, which comes from the word grace. Gratitude. How did they show gratitude? They could go up and say, uh, thanks for the million dollars, see you later. But that's not the way gratitude was shown. The way gratitude was shown was rather than telling the patron, thank you, which I'm sure they would have done, I would have done. In fact, every time someone's given me a million dollars, I've done that. Hasn't happened yet, but... Um, the way they would show gratitude would be to tell everybody what this person had done. And by doing that, what they were doing was lifting this person's reputation in the public arena. That is called honour, giving them honour. And in the Greco-Roman world, which is the time of the first century when the New Testament was written, honour was more precious, more valuable, more sought after than money or wealth. So we have in Proverbs 22 verse 1, it says, reflecting this idea, a good name is to be chosen above riches. A good name. In other words, if you have a name, a reputation, you have honour from the public, honour from people, honour from the community, you are someone who treasures that more than wealth. So in this Greco-Roman world, which backdrops the New Testament, we're going to read some of these words. And it would do us well, I think, to appreciate these words. Let's have a look at how it's used here in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. It's on the screen, but if you do have a Bible, you know, like Denise said, one of these paper things, you might want to take note of this because the, one of the things when I'm preparing a Bible study, I, I generally like to use one of these things because I can see what's come before it a lot clearly, a lot more clearly. I can see what's coming after it a lot more clearly and, and I use all kinds of things like book notes and sticky notes and bits of paper in here just to highlight things that I want to focus on so here's Ephesians 2:19. notice this language so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God and what's the apostle Paul saying in this epistle to the Ephesians he's saying you were outside of the household and one of the points I'm going to make is that all of those things I've just told you about are actually a reflection of God God is the most influential person God is someone who's described as having a house. In fact, right there it says, members of the household of God. 
if there's a household of God, there's this structure that I've just described where you have the householder, his wife was the business manager, she was the one who organised the staff day to day. As we'll see in our next instalment, the house was actually built in a, with a certain architecture to enable the household and a part of that architecture involved at least one, commonly two rooms that were facing the road that had shutters that could be lifted up and they served as shops. So the household was a commercial operation. So all of these things have a relationship to God. Continuing on in this passage, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 down to 22, it says this, built on, this is what the household's built on, the architecture's built on, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. A temple is a place where God and man meet. Paul the Apostle says, your body is a temple because if you have Christ in you, God and man are meeting. You are, you are meeting with God. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So now the Apostle Paul is saying, not only has God got a household, but when you become a Christian, when you become a follower of Christ, when you demonstrate that commitment to Christ by being baptised in water, as we will do in a few weeks, you are saying, I'm a part of that house. I'm, I'm, I'm a part of that house. And so now what I want to look at is an aspect again, which would be very easy to put our Western mindset, our Western way of looking at things, into these words, this word in particular. But I want to look at, this is the gracious hospitality of the household, of a household. That word hospitality, and here's what I'd just like to do, and I'd like you to contribute. Who's prepared to share with, with us, with your church family, an experience of incredible hospitality? Has anyone got an incredible experience of hospitality where you've gone, wow, that was... All right, Wendy, what is it? Um, yes, you so got something Karen in your and Michael mm -hmm. Dixon um, held a, um, a get-together every Christmas Eve on the lawn um, in our neighbourhood. Yes. And we didn't know them from a bar of soap and they left a thing in there saying, please come to our Christmas Eve. And that was the start of our association with this church, which has just been the biggest blessing from God and as are the Dixons. So there you go. That's Two great blessings. There you go. That, there's hospitality. How's that? Anyone else got an example of hospitality? Get ready. All right. Take, take this over to Stephanie, who's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> um, so when I was um, serving God in England, there was a couple that I met through church, and I was working with OM, and they could tell that I w was, you know, wanting to meet with families outside of OM. Mm -hmm. And so they had me around for a meal every week mm. for a year. And they invited me for Christmas as well. And they, mm. they kind of became like my UK family. Lovely. And that was um, a real blessing. I look forward to spending time with them oh, every week. That's great. Yeah, that, and that, the yeah. father used to drive like half an hour to pick me up and half an hour to drive oh, me back. Great. All right, one more. Yeah, that's great. All right, someone else got an example of lavish hospitality. All right, Beck. 
We, one year, right before Christmas, through a, quite a few mistakes <laughs> from our um, from the accountants and our bookkeeper and things, we actually had all our money cut off about a month or two before Christmas. Right. And we had nothing coming in and so we didn't even have what we thought would be a Christmas meal for mm. the kids. Um, and on Christmas Eve, someone beautiful and special turned up on our doorstep with a full Christmas meal for us so we were oh. able to give everything to the kids That's that year. Great. So. That's great. That's great. Wonderful. All right. I'm, sh- I'm sure that if, you know, probably after the service there'll be examples where you might share with each other about acts of hospitality and I'm sure, I'm sure there are people who've got examples of this kind of what we might call lavish hospitality. And, and I do recall Karen giving the communion talk a few weeks ago where she described a lavish hospitality expedition where, what was it, you brought berries, or the idea was you brought berries along and there was a full banquet there. And Anyway, and she drew the analogy with God as well. Hospitality, I want to show you, it, it, it looks like that, but, but in the first century Greco-Rome, it looked a lot, a lot different. A lot different and let me explain how and then when you read a passage like this this is Romans chapter 12 verse 13 it says this contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality now that's what's called an imperative that's Romans 12 Romans 12 verses 9 to 21 we've done a whole Bible study series on this in our home groups and there's 21 things in there it says this is what a church does and that's one of them well in fact uh, that's two of them, isn't it? Contribute to the needs of the saints and show hospitality, although they're, they're linked. In Hebrews, it, it makes two references to hospitality. Here's one of them, and it's quite amazing. It says this, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. In fact, the word hospitality, philonexia, philo means love, nexia means stranger. Show love to a stranger. That's what hospitality is. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels without knowing it or unawares. That's amazing. And then Peter, now that, that's the writer of Hebrews, writing to a Hebrew culture where, where hospitality was built into the fabric of their culture. Peter writing to Gentiles who maybe didn't have the same kind of appreciation of hospitality had to tell them this. So this is 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9. He said this, Show hospitality to one another and stop your grumbling without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Wow. So I want to show you this quote from a young theologian who I think is really good. He says this, Within the Christian culture of the first century, hospitality was uh, also an important expression of the love of believers one for another, a living out of the ethos of kinship or treating each other as family within the trans-local, not trans-community, trans-local Christian community. In other words, he's saying, as I'll show you in a moment, it's not just those you know, it's those you've never met. Trans-local means they're not from around these here parts. They're strangers to you. He goes on, he says, The strangers who passed in a constant stream through the cities of all the great routes of commerce in both east and west, every one of those strangers who bore the Christian name had therein a claim to hospitality. So 
it was expected that if a Christian traveller turned up in a town, he could find the local household church and he could rightly expect he'd be looked after or she'd be looked after. Another commentator said this, for Christianity was and grew because it was a great fraternity. That means a family, a brotherhood. The name brother vividly expressed a real fact and we read that in the New Testament. A Christian found wherever he went in the community of his fellow Christians a welcome and hospitality. So it was the hospitality of the early Christians that enabled the widespread evangelism and the apostolic oversight of the church's rapid growth. We, we see in some of the small letters right near the end of your Bible in Third John, which for some reason, some, for some you might think, well, why is that even in the Bible? It's not really contributing much. But now have a look at this. This is uh, Third John, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 1. There's only one chapter, verse 1 and verse 5. So I've got verse 1 here. So you can see he's writing this to a householder. His name is Gaius, to the elder, the elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. So here John the Apostle is commending this householder by the name of Gaius. He's saying, Gaius, you have done well. We, we have sent messengers to you who are conveying maybe manuscripts that other apostles have written that maybe are in the New Testament now. They are on their way through and you have shown them hospitality, which I'll show you in a moment is not just a meal, it's far more. And here John is saying, because of that, you have advanced the cause of Christ. But perhaps for some of you, this might sow the seed that hospitality can actually further the cause of Christ. He goes on and says to Gaius, therefore, we ought to support people like these, whom you've just shown hospitality to, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So showing hospitality to a gospel worker the apostle john says made you a fellow worker or what's that word partner with them but conversely the early church used the denial of hospitality to hinder the spread of false teaching and john refers to that as well in this epistle so we have in third john verse 9 which may be verse 10, I'm thinking, but I oh know it's nine. Anyway, I have written something to the church. So this is another householder. Now, this householder isn't doing what Gaius is doing. So where John is writing to, he's now telling Gaius, in your area, there is another householder. His name is Diotrephes. And he is hindering the work of God by not showing the same kind of hospitality that you are. In fact, what he's doing is, if anyone in the church family shows hospitality to our workers, he's kicking them out of the church, the Apostle John says. Therefore, what's John doing? What's the opposite of honour? The opposite of honour is shame. He's shaming this man, Diotrephes. He says he likes to put 
himself first. He does not acknowledge our authority. If I come, the Apostle John says, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. Who's us? The Apostles. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who uh, want to and puts them out of the church. So this is what, I'm, what I mentioned before. So the early church was using hospitality to say to a false teacher, no, you're not getting a platform here. We're not going to show you hospitality here. You can't stay here because you're spreading something false. So hospitality hindered the spread of false teaching. The Apostle Paul, in his apostolic ministry, could not have happened if he had not received hospitality. We would hardly have any of the New Testament if it wasn't for the fact there were people who showed the Apostle Paul hospitality. There's numerous examples, and as you go through the New Testament now and you read of Paul referring to the household of Stephanus and the, house, and the household of and the household of, and in Romans chapter 16, he lists about 16 people whom he had benefited from, from their hospitality. Here's one example I've got in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 5 and 6, where he's writing to the believers in Corinth, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you and even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. So you can imagine someone turning up at your door, at least he was announcing it, imagine someone turning up unannounced and say, can I have some hospitality? Say, sure, how long for? The winter? Like, in our culture we'd go, have you, have you heard of the McCure? You know, it's like, <laughs> but here we have Christians where there was no McCure, there was no Hilton. They were showing hospitality to each other. What did a householder's hospitality provide a guest with? Firstly, a householder provided a guest with a demonstrated warm welcome. A demonstrated warm welcome. I want to give you this, I think Luke chapter 7 is probably one of my favourite gospel chapters. And I know today out in kids' church, they're looking at this chapter as well. And in fact, they're looking at this story that I'm going to recount to you. But it illustrates this. I'm not going to draw the actual principles out of this story. I just want you to see some of the background to this story. This is Luke chapter 7, verse 44. So the dinner party's already underway. And here we have, you know the story where Jesus goes in and think dining table, but don't think sit down on chairs dining table, think elbow on the floor to prop yourself up, food in the middle of, a, of the thing and you're eating and your, your feet are out that way. And as Christ's feet are out that way, the host, a man by the name of Simon, who's a Pharisee, is on the other side. And Jesus looks at Simon as he looks at the woman who's just come in to the courtyard area, probably where this is happening and he looks at her in disgust and it's an interesting exchange that happens then turning around towards the woman oh so so Jesus is about to speak to the woman right Uh, 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 have a look he said to Simon now I've pointed this out before when you talk to someone you look at them if you don't look at them it's a mark of dishonor it's a mark of you're shaming them What is Jesus doing here? Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? What what kind of question is that? Simon, of course he'd seen this woman. And as I've pointed out, 
Simon had never seen this woman. He was looking at a, a woman, but he didn't see her at all. Anyway, I entered your house. This is the point I want to make. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. Notice how Jesus is scolding Simon, the householder, for not providing the kind of hospitality he told Jesus he would provide. By inviting him for a meal, he was instigating hospitality, but he didn't show it. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Kiss was a mark of welcome. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And as we discover later, Jesus saw that as preparation for his burial. The point here is, when you're travelling on a road where donkeys and camels travel and you've only got leather sandals and you're walking through the squelching stuff that squelches on those kind of cobblestone roads, guess what happens to the odour of your feet? Because however bad you think your feet odorise when you're wearing socks and shoes, I can pretty much guarantee you they odorise to the nth degree when you're walking through camel manure. And to come in with feet like that and not even be offered the welcome of washing your feet was disgraceful. A householder was expected to provide a warm welcome. Secondly, a householder provided a guest with a comfortable, refreshing welcome. You know, one of the first things I think it's always nice when, when you come into a house you've not been in before, you can say, oh, um, welcome, let me you know, take your coat or whatever. And, oh, if you need the bathroom, do people do that? Like, I hope that's cut, like ordinary, right? If you need the bathroom, it's just down, down there, right? You can, and you make sure, if you're a father of daughters, you make sure that the coast is clear, right, in the bathroom. No one knows what I'm talking about. Okay, there's a father of daughters. So, a, a householder provided a, a guest with a comfortable, refreshing welcome. This is where Paul says to Timothy, and he's using this as an illustration of what it looks like when you're part of the initiation procedure for hospitality. And he, he's not making a point about it because everyone knew about it. He's actually making another point about false teachers and good teachers. But here, here's what he says. And let, let's see if we can visually see what he's saying. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honourable use, some for dishonourable. What, what do you use vessels of gold and silver for? Drinks. What do you use vessels for wood and of wood and clay? Let me be blunt. Poo, Michael. Yeah, I've got your attention now, haven't I, Michael? You, you work with poo all the time. And, if, and you could do that, but you could also have a vessel in a private room where you could wash your hands and it would go into another container and what goes into that and what goes into the other one is thrown out. It is, to use the word, dishonourable in that it's, dirty but you you give your guest this opportunity to wash to use the toilet and the analogy that Paul is making is that this describes the difference between good teachers and bad teachers but I'm actually wanting you to see 
why and how he's able to make that. Thirdly, a householder provided a guest with an honoured place at the meal table. Now, I could have, I, I, we could go through the Gospels and we could show you this, how Christ was honoured. In fact, I will in a moment, but how about this one? This is during Paul's travels in the book of Acts where he's preached, he's brought a family to Christ, that family bring him home, the householder brings him home, and it says this, then he, br- uh, then he brought them up into his house, Dr. Luke writing, and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So we have this householder placing Paul and his travelling companions in a place of honour at the table. And in John chapter 12, verse 2, this is just after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so it says, to show you how they honoured Christ, they gave a dinner for him there. Like, not, please, in our Western mindset, we go, oh, so they gave him some food. No, 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 just gave him food. It's not about the food. It's about the position of honour. They had Christ seated in, in, at this dinner in a place of honour and invited people to see that they were honouring him, as the text goes on and says. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And I just figure if someone raised one of my family members from the dead, I would show some gratitude as well. And that's what Martha's doing. So we have hospitality as a way of honouring someone, as an honoured guest, not just giving them food, but honouring them around the mealtime. We do realise Mealtime is not just about eating, right? We get that, right? I hope we get that. I hope we get that as families. I hope we get that as husband and wife. That's all we have time for tonight. For a CD copy or premium download of tonight's discussion, I invite you to visit our website, findingtruthmatters.org, and select Household of God, Part 3, from our online store. As we've heard tonight, hospitality played a vital role in the early church and reflects what God offers us through Christ today. More from Dr. Corbett next week as he continues with the Household of God series. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.